Good morning. I'm Dave Selvig, and our scripture reading is from the book of Romans. If you'd like to follow along, you can find it in your Bible or on the screen. I'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible, Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Romans 1, 1 through 7. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his namesake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Once again, my name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here. Glad to have you all here with me this morning. Um, I am battling some serious uh, springtime allergies. Anybody else? It's pretty bad today, isn't it? I, uh, I guess I sound so terrible that during the last song, Refiner's Fire, one of the sound guys ran up here and thought my microphone was hot. Something was wrong with it. And then he took it off and he brought it back and tried to fix it. And he says, nope, it wasn't the, mi it wasn't the, it wasn't the microphone, it was you. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> So I, I'm not sure how I'm coming across today, or I just can't sing, but uh, I'm feeling kind of um, oppressed here. Uh, we are starting a new series today uh, through the book of Romans, and the series is called The Reason for Grace, and that's grace as opposed to works. And this is Paul expositing the gospel for the church at Rome, and um, Every commentator I read, I'm reading 14 commenta commentators right now. And, uh, and all the commentators they refer to, just about every single person refers to the book of Romans as the book. It's, it's Paul's masterpiece. It's the greatest exposition of the gospel that we have. Uh, it is the gospel of God, the gospel according to Jesus Christ, according to Paul. It is a big deal to sort of be um, taking on this book as a series. And so uh, just right up front, let me say that uh, I have a great desire to do it justice. I want to uh, give it the kind of study and presentation that it deserves. A part of me just tired just thinking about it. It's just a lot of work. And... Uh, Lots of very respectable thinkers and scholars have 
have lots to say about um, every little verse and word and uh, phrase. So it is intimidating to stand with these scholars and try to um, own some piece of it as best as I can. But uh, here we go. I'm going to try to keep it a little bit uh, focused today. I have two points for us. First, Paul. And second, you also. Okay, Paul, and then you also. Paul. It is a dangerous uh, task to write to the church in Rome in the way that Paul is writing. He comes out really strong about his allegiance to Jesus and his allegiance to God. He's writing to the most powerful country in Paul's time. He is writing to a country that was ruled by the most powerful man in the world at that time. Uh, Caesar was called by title, Son of God. His birthday, the nickname for his birthday is the gospel or the good news. And uh, Paul begins this letter by speaking of himself as a servant of Jesus rather than of Caesar. And if Caesar got a hold of this, what would happen to Paul? And he's communicating over and over again that he's, his allegiance, that his belonging is to God and not to Rome or to Caesar. And so this is, a, I think, a very deliberate beginning by Paul. And uh, he really begins by asserting over and over again this idea of calling, that God himself has called him, that God himself has called him as an apostle, God himself has called him as an apostle and set him apart for the purpose of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul is of God, and he is under the authority of God. He belongs to God, right? And so we go through it. Verse 1, Paul says, bondservant of Jesus Christ, called as apostle. He's set apart. He's of God. Verse 2. He promised through Holy Scriptures. Can you imagine you're flipping through and the Holy Scriptures are giving you a job description? Then you know you are set apart, right? History is in the making and you are making it. That's a pretty, pretty big task. And then verse 3, he declares that Jesus was born of a descendant. Verse 4, declared according to... Lord, verse 5, that he received. And it's for Jesus' namesake. It's his namesake. All of these words and these phrases are repeating the idea over and over again that there is such a thing as destiny. There is such a thing as calling. And I don't know what image is helpful to you, but for me, the image that's helpful, I used to frame houses when I was in college. And so we would use uh, this chalk line or a plumb line, and we would use that string to snap a line on wood or dangle it from a high place to know exactly what plumb was. We knew exactly what a straight line was supposed to look like. And every, everything that wasn't straight, we would compare it to that, and it would go in the scrap pile. It's this standard by which a home is built, this plumb line. And that's what I imagine when I read these words in the story of Paul's life. Paul wasn't just living life. 
he wasn't just taking his shape class and thinking, oh, I prefer to do this and I like to do that. What should I do? He wasn't thinking, I have this infinite permutation of choices and I get to choose. That's not what Paul was thinking. Paul read the scriptures. He knew what was unfolding in history. And God had personally communicated to him Paul's part in that history. Paul lived life as a man on a mission, a very specific mission called to exposit the gospel of Jesus Christ for the first time in history, things into which angels themselves long to look. He was doing it for the first time. All of that Jewish knowledge he had gathered, all the scriptures he studied as a Pharisee, all that was now being used, redeemed by God to exposit the gospel, not for Jews first, but for the Gentiles first. As far as Paul was concerned, God was calling him to the Gentiles to preach the gospel. What an amazing task. Paul was a man under authority. He exists for a purpose. And he lives by this plumb line. Now, if you ask Paul what freedom was, what would he say? Paul, this is America. Welcome to America. We believe in freedom here. We believe you have a choice. How do you define freedom? How do you define choice? What is freedom? And I think Paul would say, freedom is not the ability to do whatever you want to do. Freedom is the ability, the power to obey your calling. When I'm in prison, I lose my freedom because God has called me to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, but I can't do it. I'm locked up in here instead. So I lose my freedom. But freedom would be if I can be out there preaching the gospel because that's what God has called me to do. So that's Paul. Second, you also. Verse 6 says, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. Paul is saying, listen, this is me. This is my calling. This is my purpose in life. This is the plumb line. I obey. But you also are called of Jesus. How do you define freedom? What is freedom for you? Now, I've been thinking about this. And I think freedom is primarily being able to do what I want to do. You know what the problem is? I don't know what I want to do. Do you know what you want to do? See, I would love to have total freedom, the ability to do what I want to do. Most of the choices I make, I find I'm doing things I don't actually want to do. I just thought I wanted to do it. I can look back at the prayers I prayed five years ago, and I think, what a waste of prayer. I can't believe I was praying for such nonsense. But that's my perspective. My problem is that my soul and my heart and my mind are just entangled in a web of deceit and delusion and sin. I'm not free. Not because I can't do what I want, 
but because I don't know what I want. And I'm often, I'm often deluded and delusional about what I think I want. Think about yourself when you were a teenager. And some of you are teenagers right now. Think about what you wanted, what you hoped for. You know, my kids have been asking me for money lately, just all the time. And they want to buy things. And I can't believe they want to blow their money, precious, hard-earned money, on such frivolous things. But such is our mind. We don't know what we want. Let me read to you a quote from uh, Doc, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, letter that he wrote to a uh, fellow clergy while he was in Birmingham jail. I'm going to be quoting this letter a couple of times. Here's your first one. Oppressed people cannot remain oppressed forever. The urge for freedom will eventually come. This is what has happened to the American Negro. Something within has reminded him of his birthright of freedom. Something without has reminded him that he can gain it. There's something within us, Dr. King says, that tells us we are meant to be free. There's something without us, outside of us, that remind us that we are meant to be free. And I want to suggest to you today that freedom at its core is not being able to do whatever it is you think you want to do. But that you have a calling. You have a plumb line in your life. And you may not label it as a calling. Some of you may call it conscience. Some of you may call it common sense. Some call it truth. Some call it the right thing to do. But at any given moment, all of us, we are struggling to know what the right thing to do is. Whether you call it morality, whether you call it justice, whether you call it fairness, whether you call it wisdom or principle, whether you are a parent or a manager, whether you are a teacher or a preacher, whether you stay at home or you go into the office, at any given moment, all of us are wanting to know what the right or better thing to do is. And our problem is that we don't know how to be a better parent at that exact moment. The problem isn't that I can't do anything and everything. The problem is I am trapped in my mind and in my heart. And here's the things I know I should do. That's my calling. But I can't do it. I'm enslaved. And so when I read here in verse 1, Paul says he is a bondservant of Jesus Christ. I think, good for him. It's so good. He knows this. He's not a slave of sin, but he's a slave of Jesus Christ. You also are called. And you need to be set free from your bondage of sin. At any given moment, you are not free to be the best fill-in-the-blank you can be because you are a slave of sin. What is freedom? Freedom is having the power to do what is right. 
but I don't have this power to do what is right. Every moment can be a struggle. I'm struggling with morality. I'm struggling with temptation. I'm struggling with laziness. I'm struggling with shortcuts. I'm struggling with my feelings. I'm struggling with impatience. Whether you are a Christian or a worker or a parent, a lover, a friend, a citizen, or a neighbor, what does freedom look like? There's a line I'm supposed to follow. And so Jesus is here, and he convicts us of sin. He reveals his will. He gives us the Holy Spirit, which helps us. And through the Holy Spirit, we begin to experience a bit of freedom. The power to do what is right in any given moment, in any given situation. Let me uh, continue on and read uh, a longer portion of the letter from Birmingham Jail. <clears throat> Dr. King continues on, he says this. Um, actually, let me, uh, before I read this, let me set the stage uh, context a little bit. Uh, this letter was written on April 16th, the year 1963. This makes today almost the 50, exact 50th anniversary of the writing of this letter. Dr. King was in Birmingham jail because he was peacefully marching uh, with his fellow African Americans. And they didn't want him marching, so they threw him in jail. And uh, Dr. King... Uh, starts out this letter by saying that, um, you know, I would never normally take the time to respond to my critics because if I did that, I would never get anything else done. But I want to respond to you. And he's writing to other fellow clergy because he said he is deeply grieved that they're criticizing him. And they want, he wants to respond to their criticisms one by one. And in this case, he's responding to... Um, a piece of criticism from the clergy where they said that he was being too impatient and not working within the system enough and not taking enough time to bring about change. And he says this, one of the basic points in your statement is that the action that I and my associates have taken in Birmingham is untimely. Some have asked, why didn't you give the new city administration time to act. The only answer that I can give to this query is that the new Birmingham administration must be prodded about as much as the outgoing one before it will act. We are sadly mistaken if we feel that the election of Albert Boutwell as mayor will bring about the millennium to Birmingham. While Mr. Boutwell is a much more gentle person than Mr. Connor, they are both segregationists dedicated to maintenance of the status quo. I have hope that Mr. Botwell will be reasonable enough to see the futility of massive resistance to desegregation, but he will not see this without pressure from devotees of civil rights. My friends, I must say to you that we have not made a single gain in civil rights without determined legal and nonviolent pressure. Lamentably, it is a historical fact that privileged groups seldom give up their privileges voluntarily. 
individuals may see the moral light and voluntarily give up their unjust posture. But as Reinhold Niebuhr has reminded us, groups tend to be more immoral than individuals. We know through painful experience that freedom is never voluntarily given by the oppressor. It must be demanded by the oppressed. Frankly, I have yet to engage in a direct action campaign that was, quote-unquote, well-timed. In the view of those who have not suffered unduly from the disease of segregation. For years now, I've heard the word wait. It rings in the ear of every Negro with piercing familiarity. This wait has almost always meant never. We must come to see with one of our distinguished jurists that justice too long delayed is justice denied. We have waited for more than 340 years for our constitutional and God-given rights. The nations of Asia and Africa are moving with jet-like speed towards gaining political independence. But we stiff creep at horse and buggy pace toward gaining a cup of coffee at a lunch counter. Perhaps it is easy for those who have never felt the stinging darts of segregation to say, wait. But when you have seen vicious mobs lynch your mothers and fathers at will and drown your sisters and brothers at whim, when you have seen hate-filled policemen curse, kick, and even kill your fellow black brothers and sisters, when you see the vast majority of your 20 million Negro brothers smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an affluent society, when you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she can't go to the public amusement park that has just been advertised on television and see tears welling up in her eyes when she is told that Funtown is closed to colored children and see ominous clouds of inferiority beginning to form in her little mental sky and see her beginning to distort her personality by developing an unconscious bitterness towards white people. When you have to concoct an answer for a five-year-old son who is asking, Daddy, why do white people treat colored people so mean? When you take a cross-country drive and find it necessary to sleep night after night in the uncomfortable corners of your automobile because no motel will accept you. When you are humiliated day in and day out by nagging signs reading white and colored. When your first name becomes nigger and your middle name becomes boy, however old you are, and your last name becomes John, and your wife and mother are never given the respected title missus. When you are harried by day and haunted by night by the fact that you are a Negro living constantly at tiptoe stance, never quite knowing what to expect next, and are plagued with inner fears and outer resentments. When you go forever fighting a degenerating sense of nobodiness, when will you understand why we find it difficult to wait? There comes a time when the cup of endurance runs over, and men are no longer willing to be plunged into the abyss of despair. I hope, sirs, you can understand our legitimate and unavoidable impatience. (laughs) 
when I was in college, I um, uh, was told by God or my mother that I was supposed to be a doctor. My mother is here today. Um, and so I went to, I uh, was part of a pre-med program at the University of Michigan and uh, studying biology and things. And then by senior year, I was convinced that God was calling me to go into the ministry, the, to vocational ministry, that is. And um, the way I experienced that was this. I was talking to a uh, number of pastors. I made a set of appointments, and each pastor had a different criteria by which I would know that God was calling me to vocational ministry. One pastor said, if you don't love the Bible so much that you're reading it at least five times a year, you're probably not called. And I said, I have never read it once my whole life. I guess I'm not called. Another pastor said, you know, ministry is really all about people. And so if you don't love being with people, you're probably not called. And I said, you know, I love people, but I love books more than people. So maybe I'm not called. And then I was studying the scriptures, and I came across the story of Moses. And when I was reading the story of Moses, I read how he was born with a speech impediment, but he was quickly abandoned by his Jewish mother, and then he was raised in a stranger's home. And in this home, he uh, was cared for but never really loved because he didn't have a mother to, uh, by his side. And then, um, and then he uh, became a murderer. And then he became a fugitive, and he ended up marrying a Kushite woman. That's an, that's an African woman. So he, a Jewish man, married a black woman. And then he, being so poor, was living at his father-in-law's house, who was a priest. And uh, he became a shepherd, one of the lowliest jobs that a man could have. And out of that state of spiritual and social and financial poverty, God called Moses to be a covenant mediator prophet. That is the highest status you can have as a prophet. There are only two in the whole Bible. The second covenant mediator prophet is Jesus Christ, who mediated the second covenant. Moses mediated the first. And so I come across the story of Moses, and I ask the question, when was Moses called? And the obvious answer is the burning bush, right? God says, Moses, Moses. He literally called him. But the real answer is the burning bush wasn't when God called Moses. And calling was not a choice which Moses made. But it was a choice which God made, which in turn had been making Moses his whole life. You begin to understand that to be a covenant mediator prophet, God wanted a humble person. And so God had humiliated Moses and had been forming him to be the most humble man on the face of the earth, as Scripture testifies of Moses. God wanted somebody with a passion for the people of Israel. And so Moses loved the people of Israel so much that he murdered an Egyptian. Raw and untrained as that passion and love for his people were. And so God had been working in Moses' life his whole life. And the burning bush moment was when God simply let Moses know that God had always called him, had already called him, and that this calling was shaping him. It was an FYI to Moses. 
And that's, this is sort of what I experienced as a senior in college. That my whole life began to make sense in the light of God's call on my life. That things didn't quite make sense. But if God was calling me to be a pastor, calling me to be a preacher, then my life began to click into place. It was like seeing the ants is how I say it. You see one ant, and then you see another, and then before you know it, you see a swarm of 3,000 ants covering the surface of the sidewalk where an ice cream cone has fallen. And that's what it was like, one piece emerging after another, and all of a sudden, God's calling became clear to me. And now this same sense of calling has brought me here to this church. And I feel that sense of call here. The sense of fit and finish and timing and all the little stories that have um, spoken God's uh, will to me and the people of this church. It was, it was really powerful for me. I hadn't sensed something like that in a long time. And here I am at this older, established church, over 60 years old, Mercer Island Covenant Church. And I'm trying to bring about change. I've been hired to bring about change in this church. And uh, it's been amazing what I've been able to do. I've had a very emotional week this week thinking about all the work and the heartache just in the last seven months to come to this place where we have a new staff team, where we have a new leadership team that's forming, where we have new governance. Do you know on Easter Sunday we had 448 people at church? Do you know about a dozen people have accepted Christ since October? Do you know that we have grown by about 80 new people since we opened our doors again in the fall? It's really amazing work to me. I hear from a lot of you during the week, though, that you feel I'm moving too fast. And you're asking me to wait. And I want to I do that. I want to be patient and I want to be aware of history and attachments and all of that. But do you know that this church has been declining for over the last 20 years? Year over year, our ministry effectiveness has been diminishing. For over 20 years. Every year. And so it's hard for me to hear the word wait. Because we've been waiting for over 20 years. For 20 years, ministry could have done more and better. Instead of 448 on Easter, it could have been 848. Instead of 12 people accepting Christ, it could have been a baker's dozen, 13. Isn't 13 better than 12? I want to challenge you this morning. I want to tell you that you have been called to do ministry, whether it's in your workplace or whether it's in this church, whether it's in your families or whether it's with your neighbors. I don't make any more money. I have nothing to gain if we bring about change faster. In fact, it's easier for me to just keep status quo, just keep things the way they are. I have a much more relaxed life. There's less complaints. There's less tension. Less stress in my life. 
but what I will lose in ministry opportunity. I feel our job is to reach as many people as deeply as possible, deeper in Christ, further in mission. And I think God has called this church to be that safe and holy place where people can come and be invited, where they can hear the story of Jesus, where they can experience love in a tangible way, where they can experience healing, where they can hear the good news. And we're asking the question, what's the best way to do that? What needs to change? Maybe the communion table needs to go. Maybe the chairs need to be reconfigured. Maybe we need to bring about a better small groups ministry. Maybe the music needs to change. Maybe the drums need to get softer. Maybe louder. But who cares? These are all details compared to the ministry opportunity that is before us. Church, I want to ask you, what is your calling? Let me read to you a quote that I put in the loop this week. Thus, for followers of Christ, calling neutralities, uh, calling neutralizes the fundamental position of choice in modern life. I have chosen you, Jesus said. You have not chosen me. We are not our own. We have been bought with a price. We have no rights, only responsibilities. Following Christ is not our initiative, merely our response in obedience. Nothing works better to debunk the pretensions of choice than a conviction of calling. Once we have been called, we literally have no choice. We don't have the right to do church however we prefer to do it. That's not our choice. That's not our prerogative. Because we have been called. It doesn't matter what music I prefer or what music you prefer. It doesn't matter whether you want the communion table back or not. It doesn't matter how you have done it, how we will do it. None of this matters. It pales in comparison to the calling with which we have been called. Do you know that you have been bought with a price? Do you know that the blood of Jesus cleanses you from all sin? That you never have to wrestle with guilt. That he is redemptive in your life. And in all things, God, the living God, is working for the good in your life. How amazing is that? Do you want to share that with people? Do you want to invite others into the family of God? To do so. Remember that you have been called. And calling means you don't have a choice. We are going to do whatever it takes to ex exploit this church for the sake of the gospel. Because we have been called. And we can't wait. We have been waiting for over 20 years. We're not going to wait another 20 seconds. Ministry opportunity in this church 
is amazing, the potential. Our location, this building, all of the maturity and resources we have, all of the finances. We have to exploit this all for the sake of the gospel. And all of God's people said, amen. Father, what does it mean that you have set us free? It means that you have set us free to do ministry, to do the work that you have set beforehand for us to do. Father, we repent of our laziness. We repent of our self-centeredness. We repent for loving our preferences and our ways and our history and what we're used to more than ministry effectiveness, more than your kingdom come. Father, when I think about what it means for me to have a Savior and a Redeemer, I can't wait. The time is now. And so, Holy Spirit, come and fill this place with power from on high. Anoint us for the work that you are calling us to do. All of us, we lay our hands and our hearts bare and open before you. Search us and know. We entrust this church to you, God. Do with us whatever you wish. We are yours. We belong to you. In Jesus' name.